You are listening to Reels and Riffs with Random Allen on WWSU 106.9 FM. Reels and Riffs is your number one stop for film talk, the sweet sound of classic rock, and the best special guests on college radio. Now kick back, relax, and enjoy the next hour. This week on the show, we have a very music-focused episode. For the first half, we are jamming out and talking about one of the greatest rock bands of all time. And for the second half of our show, we welcome Steve Downs, famous radio DJ and voice of Master Chief from the Halo series. The views and opinions expressed on Reels and Riffs are my own and do not reflect the views and opinions of WWSU 106.9 FM or Wright State University. We are going to be ending our season soon and taking a short break for the holidays in about three weeks, but we're going out on a high note. For our last show of the season, we are bringing back my friend and local musician Steve Lloyd, along with our friend, radio DJ and great singer Dee Lee Burgess for our Big Beatles show. We've talked about the Beatles already several times on the show. But in memory of John Lennon's tragic passing over 40 years ago, we're having an episode that celebrates the Beatles and the impact they still have on music in general. Make sure to tune in for that show in a couple weeks. But let's not delay and get right into our first segment, Vinyl Deep Dive. Welcome to Vinyl Deep Dive, the segment where I'll be presenting you in-depth discussions about classic rock, a little bit of music history, and the sweet sound of vinyl to get you through that afternoon grind. I'm just getting into record collecting myself, and together we'll go on a journey of discovery as I add to my collection, and we'll listen together to the best that classic rock has to offer. The band we're discussing today shook the foundations of rock music. Four supremely talented British musicians burned through the music scene like a lead balloon. Critics at the time hated them, but their fans adored them. Through innovative and unconventional methods, they weaved together hard rock, folk rock, and blues into the foundations of a new sound never seen before. Who are they? Well, I'll let the band introduce themselves. Thank you very much. I'd like to introduce Led Zeppelin to you. On bass guitar, John Paul Jones. John Paul Jones. On drums, John Bonham. Lead guitar, Jimmy Page. And myself, Robert Plant. Still gives me chills every time I hear it. Yes, we're talking about Led Zeppelin, one of my all-time favorites. It's very rare that you have a band comprised of four geniuses who otherwise would stand out in any other band. Zeppelin was one of the most groundbreaking and controversial bands at the time, and it helped pull rock music back from the brink of destruction after the deaths of Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, the breakup of the Beatles, and the rise of punk rock. Led Zeppelin rocked music for over a decade, and today we're talking about one of my favorite albums of theirs, Led Zeppelin IV. Released on November 8th, 1971, this album was released at the pinnacle of Led Zeppelin's popularity, and it didn't even need a title to sell. Led Zeppelin IV stands out from like the minimalist and the unconventional cover alone. 
Led Zeppelin IV really demonstrates the true depth of the group's music and desire to try new things, and has the song that many consider one of the greatest tracks in rock and roll history. Special thanks to my wonderful fiancé, Alex, for getting me this vintage coffee. I love you, babe. Unlike many bands today who are frequently limited somewhat by the producer or interference from like their record label or the people with the money, Led Zeppelin was given full creative freedom to bring their vision to life, dip into different musical styles, and be innovative. From the thunderous hard rock riffs of When the Levy Breaks and Rock and Roll to the melancholic emotional drive of Going to California. Let's start this segment strong with one of Zeppelin's most memorable hard rock tracks, Black Dog.
Black Dog is quintessentially Zeppelin, and it actually gets its name from a black Labrador retriever that wandered around outside of Headley Grange, the house where they recorded the entire fourth album. Headley Grange was a very good choice because of the unique environment that gave most of these tracks like Black Dog this nice ambience and allowed the sound engineers to set up some nice echo effects with some of the microphones they had. Black Dog has to have one of the most memorable guitar solos in all of Zeppelin's catalog. Before we move on to the next track, I would like to address one of Zeppelin's biggest controversies. The fact that some people seriously thought that Led Zeppelin were Satanists, or in league with the devil, and all that garbage. Most of it was intentional publicity by Led Zeppelin's publicity team and managers, or nonsense created by movement of fearful parents back when backmasking and trying to find secret messages on tracks backwards was the trend. The only shred of truth to any of this was that Jimmy Page really did have an interest in magic, read several of Aleister Crowley's books, and bought Crowley's house at some point. But Page wasn't trying to promote that, he was just, it was just a personal interest of his. I throw stories like Led Zeppelin are Satanists in the same trash bin as the Paul is Dead conspiracy theory. If you're looking for anything that sounds like words and mindless noise to prove your conspiracy theory, you're going to find words in the noise. I think Jimmy Page summed this up best with, with his quote during this interview at Oxford. And so then they started to play back all manner of records. And of course, we were going to be main candidates for it. Somebody said, oh, it says My Sweet Satan in it. And I thought, oh gosh, it's hard enough writing the music one way around rather than backwards. Moving on from insane conspiracy theories, one of the more underrated tracks from the album I almost hear nobody talk about is Battle Forevermore, and that's up now. i 
Welcome back to Reels and Riffs with Random Allen on WWSU 106.9, Dane's Right Choice. We're talking about Led Zeppelin still, and let's talk about the last track that you guys heard, Battle for Evermore. Similar to some of the tracks off of Led Zeppelin 2, Battle of Evermore really showed Zeppelin as more than just that mindless hard rock that critics frequently accuse them of being. Battle of Evermore is written like a folk rock ballad that weaves this epic fantasy melody. Robert Plant in his duet with Sandy Danny, who was a folk rock singer that they brought on for the song, really shows his versatility on Battle Forevermore. Plant acting as almost an ethereal narrator delivering these hauntingly echoing vocals while telling the song's story. The acoustic guitar really blends well with the mandolin to create this very medieval sound. It's great. One interesting thing that you probably noticed if you're listening to the song for the first time is the reference to Ring Rafes from Lord of the Rings. Led Zeppelin were huge Tolkien fans long before he was mainstream, and frequently snuck references to Tolkien's work into several of their songs. Led Zeppelin was very well-read, and in contrast to their image, the members frequently liked to sit quietly and read books after long concerts. 
The second song we're going to check out together is Going to California. The Beatles may have had a monopoly on love songs, but Led Zeppelin were no slouches either. Going to California has a very common rock melody, but very sorrowful lyrics. Page and Plant really outdid themselves by stirring up emotions of emptiness and heartbreak. While Robert Plant's singing in the song almost sounds like he's going to break down crying, it conveys a lot of feeling in a very short amount of time. Enjoy the song, and we'll be right back.
Great song. So we've been dancing around the elephant in the room the whole time I've been talking about Led Zeppelin 4. That being the song. The song that many consider to be one of the greatest rock songs ever written by anybody in the history of music. Arguably Led Zeppelin's magnum opus and one of the band's greatest contributions to music history. A song so sacred that many fans, such as Jack Black himself, say it should never be covered. I'm of course talking about We Built This City. We built this city. We built this city Calm down, calm down. It was a joke. It was a joke. Of course we're talking about Stairway to Heaven. It's a song that seamlessly blends folk rock, hard rock, and this rising melody. It's the perfect mix between the contrast in styles present in the album. I would almost compare Stairway to Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, but only in the way that perfectly blends genres together. We have a medieval ballad-style opening reminiscent of Battle for Evermore. I think John Paul Jones is probably one of the only people who can make playing the recorder sound epic. The music just builds and builds in speed and force until John Bonham comes in halfway through with his excellent performance on drums. The speed and force then morphs the folk song into a hard rock song with magnificent power chords by Jimmy Page and Robert Plant in the back screaming the lyrics of fiery emotion until finally the song crescendos and ends on Plant softly singing, and she's buying a stairway to heaven. It's a masterpiece, but like most masterpieces, it was not appreciated by everybody at the time of its release. Many fans were upset and combative towards Led Zeppelin's choices around this period to, like, try new things, and there wasn't very much fanfare the first time Stairway was played live. Many fans and the record label essentially wanted a whole lot of love with different lyrics, but the band was courageous enough to try something different. It seems like truly great art needs to sit with people before it can truly be appreciated. And appreciated it is today. Without further ado, Stairway to Heaven. When we return, Reels and Riffs is joined by a very special guest, former professional radio DJ and voice of Master Chief from the Halo series, Steve Downs. We'll be right back, folks, on WWSU 106.9, Dane's Right Choice. Gets there, she knows. You just 
There's a sign on the wall But she wants to be sure Cause you know sometimes words have
Welcome back to Reels and Riffs with Random Allen on WWSU 106.9, Dane's Right Choice. For our final segment, One on One, we are joined by a very special guest. He was an award-winning radio DJ for 44 years on stations like Chicago's 97.1 The Drive and the popular host of several nationally syndicated hits such as Rockline and The Classics. He's also an Ohio native, Dane radio alumni, all-star tambourine player, and rock music expert. But he's probably most famous among gamers for voicing Master Chief and massively popular Halo franchise. Steve Downs, everybody. How are you today, sir? And about trying. How are you? I'm doing great. Great. I actually got my start in radio in the fair city of Dayton, Ohio, many years ago. Yeah. No, I, I'm just yeah. That was my first radio job. Uh, I went to UD. Uh, I worked at the UD radio station at the time, which I don't think is no, no longer there. But uh, yeah, that's how it all got started. What initially inspired you to pursue a career in the radio industry, and is there an interesting story behind it? You know, I, I, I suppose I had an interest going way back. But I mean, my really my primary interest was was music. I I was in rock and roll bands from the time I was thirteen years old, uh, all the way through college. I mean, at, at UD, right, we used to uh, you know play fraternity parties and bars. Played at Kennedy's a few times, I think, and if I can remember correctly. And uh, uh, that was really my my drive. Uh, and when I got to uh, Dave, um, you're trying, you know, trying to figure out what what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I don't know. Be, being a drummer in a rock and roll band didn't seem like the most secure way to make a living. So uh, I actually looked into into radio uh, mainly because I thought, well, this, this would be something that I could do that would keep me close to the music. My goal at that time was to be like a record producer or something like that in the, in the music industry. And I thought radio would be a good entree into that. And then, but once I got started and I got on the air, my the, the ham and me took over, and and I just never left, and and, uh, and did it ever since. You had a real passion for it after you really got into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it really was. It just, it, it, I mean, I to be honest with you, I feel like I've never really worked a day in my life because I've been, you know, one of the very fortunate few who got to do something for a living that they truly loved and you know there's no greater reward than that what were some of the most like important qualities and skills that helped you succeed in such a competitive industry and like what were some of the biggest struggles you had to overcome at the start of your career yeah, you know probably the fact that i was i that, that i loved it so much it didn't matter what i had to do or when i had to do it or where i had to do it uh as long as i could do it and um you know, when I first started out, when I got out of college, uh, my, my first radio job outside of well, school was in Athens, Ohio, at a little station called WATH. And, you know, I, it didn't pay hardly anything. And, and so you're, you know, you're, I always tell people who want to get into the business, don't ever get into the business for the money because you're probably going to be disappointed. <laughs> uh, you, you, have, you have to do it for the love of it. And, and that's what really drove me. So, you, you know, what I had going for me was I just loved what I did. You know, the drawbacks were didn't pay much at the time, and you worked really odd hours. Uh, you know, when I was in uh, in Athens, I was working six, seven days a week. I, uh, you know, work. Uh, I was working in the sales department and the, and on air, so my days would start about ten or eleven o'clock in the morning and end at one o'clock in the morning. But uh, I loved what I did, and there was just no there was no turning back.
it sounds like one of those situations where even though it didn't pay that good because like you were passionate about it, it almost wasn't work. It, it, we, oh, it was never work. It was never, ever work. Well, I take that back. When I was doing sales, that was work. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't particularly care for it, nor was I very good at it. But, yeah, that was work. But, but the, the on-air part, the, the being on the air, doing radio production, that kind of stuff was never work. It was always, it was always uh, fun. And so uh, I would say... Yeah, at least in the early days, it didn't matter what I got paid. It just was, I, I think I would have paid them in order for me to do it. Uh, it, it was that much of a passion for me. Oh, wow. I would say, though, Random, I don't recommend telling your boss that you would pay them to do it. Even if that's how you feel, never say that. Of course. Because they're like, I'll pay, I'll, I'll pay you like the least amount I can get away with, and that just reminded exactly. them, too. Exactly. So, over the course of the shows that you've hosted, like Rockline and the Classics, you featured an elaborate commentary on, like, rock and roll. What are some rock bands or musicians that you were really passionate about growing up? And what's something unique to rock music that piqued such an interest in you? Uh, good question. Um, well, I think, uh, you know, in the very, very, very early days, you know, my first, uh, you know, real... Uh, interest, I guess, was Elvis. I mean, you know, when he first broke on the scene, it just that seemed, wow, that looks like a lot of fun and a cool way to get girls. So, you know, sent me, sent me spry 10-year-old at the time. But, um, you know, so I said my mom into, you know, getting me a guitar and, and, and taking lessons. And then, that, you know, that sort of faded. Uh, and, and, then, and then the Beatles came out and, and that changed everything you know, I mean, the day that the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan's, where my life was changed, as were many people by age at that time. Uh, our lives were changed irrevocably. And, uh, you know, I, I say on one hand, it just seemed like, wow, you, you, you get up there and play guitar and get all these girls to be screaming at you. But I think there was something, there was something more to it than just, uh, and, and, and I think that goes to the roots of rock and roll. Uh, it, it's such a primal kind of music uh, that, that, that stirs you, uh, you, you know, both uh, physically and intellectually. And, um, it, you know, it's hard for me to explain what it was that, that got me. All I know is that it just got me and it, it grabbed hold and wouldn't let go. And I just, uh, I mean, I really like all forms of music for the most part, you know, some more than others and some I appreciate. You know, maybe, but don't necessarily enjoy listening to, but I, you know, like opera. You know, I appreciate opera and I appreciate the talent and the skill that goes into it, but it's not something I like to listen to on a daily basis. Uh, but, but, uh, but rock and roll was, was just stirs something in, in people that, that, uh, is, uh, to, for me, is like, is like no other kind of music. How, for your shows, how important was like your extensive knowledge of rock music to hosting your show? And in what ways did it improve your commentary on the music you played? Well, I think it was it was integral and extremely important. Um, without it, uh, I would have never gotten the job. Uh, and uh, you, know, you have to be tuned in uh, to to a level that that is really personal. Uh, you know, you can always just 
read the bios that the record company sends you and the, and the public relations people give you and, and you know, have some rudimentary knowledge of, of who it is that you're interviewing. But unless you really care on, on, a, on a much deeper level, I don't, you know, that's going to show the work that you do. And, um, you know, I, my first interview with a, with, with a person of, of note was, uh, with Steve Miller back when I was still working in Athens, Ohio, he came to play OU, and, and I got to interview him, and it was and I, you know, I loved his music, I loved his his stuff, so to be able to meet him was just a thrill. But I remember being in a room with a lot of other, you know, people my age, and, and you know, mostly college kids, and they were interviewing him for the school newspaper or whatever, and they maybe you know they knew he was a rock star, but they didn't really know much beyond that. And he knew that I knew something, uh, you know, on a deeper level, and we connected in that way. And that kind of stuck with me ever since. And in any interview I've ever done uh, with, with rock people or other people, because I've interviewed a lot of different, uh, you know, celebrities and, and entertainers over the years. But if you can make that sort of personal connection, I think that elevates your work, and it, it, it also produces a better interview. Because they know that you actually know about their stuff, I and mean, you do exactly. They, they yeah, they, 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 you get them on a level that they like to be got. You know, <laughs> and uh, it, it, it just you know not to say that you know every interview I ever did with anybody was somebody I necessarily liked. That wasn't always the case. In fact, it may have probably was you know maybe the case for ha- half the time. But you know, just being. You know, a, as far as rock and roll was concerned, just being into the genre in a, in a, in a way that maybe they, that they were into it would allow you to have a discussion that would be different than than somebody who, perhaps, you know, perhaps the, the genre didn't mean that much to. Like a lot deeper discussion, not just the surface level yeah. stuff. So I'm going to pivot a little bit, and I'm going to talk about some of your voiceover work. What influenced you to pursue a career in voiceover work in addition to your job as radio DJ? And did you always have an interest in it beforehand? Well, I don't, you know, uh, I, I'm not sure I was even conscious of it in the early days. What really started uh, me down the voiceover path was when I was in radio, and one of my early jobs uh uh, after I left Athens, I went to a station in Pittsburgh, and when I was working there, I became production director, which was in addition to being on the air, so a production director, uh, you know, records the commercials and sometimes produces the commercials, et cetera, et cetera, and sometimes voices. And I really uh, liked that. I liked that, that sort of aspect of the business beyond just being on the air. I liked being able to you know, craft a commercial, you know, particularly ones that involve music, like for I just dug the whole production aspect of it. And and, and, and as I said at the beginning, my motivation to get into the industry in the first place was not to be on the air. It was to be in the behind-the-scenes part. You know, I, I just sort of ended up for whatever reason, uh, gravitating more to the on-air part of it than I did the production part. But it was really the production part that got me interested in the first place. And so that you know, took me down the road of um, uh, commercials. And then 
uh, initially voicing them. So, so I was doing a lot of that kind of work in Pittsburgh, and then when I moved to Los Angeles, uh, you know, where the, the voiceover uh, industry is much more uh, common, uh, I saw another avenue for me in addition to my radio work, uh, you know, another income stream, another creative outlet, and, uh, and really started to pursue voiceover as a sort of a second career and ended up leaving the production end of it behind uh, and really concentrated on the voiceover part, got an agent, started to get some work and, and found like a whole other uh, you know, career path for me at that point. What benefits do you think that your background in radio brought to your voiceover work? Interestingly, um, and I know that sounds sort of counterintuitive, uh, it, you know, it certainly was a help mm-hmm. in the beginning because just on a basic superficial level, learning how to work a mic, learning how to use a microphone, understanding what your voice is and how it records, uh, you know, people are always, you know, always going to kick out of people who hear the sound of their own I mean, they're always sort of, you know, in awe Because you always think you sound different than what you actually sound like. Um, so, uh, you know, on that basic level, obviously radio helped me. But as the more I got into voiceover, the more uh, my radio work actually was a detriment to voiceover because, um, you know, when you're a radio DJ, you develop a certain style and a certain uh, attitude uh, on the air. You know, if you there's a, you know, a certain rhythm, a certain way of talking, a certain way of doing it, and when you get into the voiceover career, that's the last thing they want. Is you know, unless the unless the thing you're doing calls for somebody who sounds like a DJ, um, you know, unless that's the case, which is very rarely the case, they want something very different. They want a, a natural sounding delivery or you know whatever. But uh, so. Because I did radio five, six days a week for mm-hmm. four or five hours a day, and then you go to do an audition and they want something mm-hmm. completely different, sometimes it's sort of going to leave jockey part of you behind when you're doing an audition for something that doesn't call for that. So I found it more uh, uh, something that got in the way rather than something that helped me. Because you get kind of into a rhythm of just having your voice over the air sounding like, sound in a certain way. And then they're like, oh, well, yeah. we need you to do this. Yeah, yeah, we don't want that. You know, they, they, they really wanted that. Although every once in a while they want that. And interestingly, I've never in, in all the years mm-hmm. I've done this business, any audition that ever called for, you know, we want you to sound like an FM DJ. I never booked one of those jobs, <laughs> which I always thought was sort of interesting. That is pretty ironic. So, going into some questions about Halo, how much did you know yeah. about Halo Combat Evolved when you were brought on to read for Master Chief? And what was the environment like at Early Bungie? Did they show you any game footage, or did they give you any work, anything to like work from before recording? Uh, well, uh, the short answer is no. Uh, I didn't even have a visual rendering of Master Chief when I went in to do it. And there's a couple of, uh, you know, again, sort of mm-hmm. ironic things about... <laughs> what became, you know, the biggest job of my life. Number one is I never auditioned for it. 
interesting as a fan of like the dollars trilogy and a lot of clint like a lot of clint eastwood work I, it makes sense i can definitely see kind of the crossover there yeah yeah there was a you know it was sort of a it was a you know it's a little <laughs> bit of uh uh you know uh, for a few dollars more meets dirty harry but but uh but he was a master chief was a little more respectful of, of the institution that dirty harry was but but it was sort of, you know, that's kind of where it was at. Uh, it, you know, he was very much a take no prisoners kind of uh, character, and yet he was also devoted, uh, you know, had a very strong military sense of devotion and that kind of thing. So that's sort of where we landed with, uh, with Master Chief. I know sometimes people describe Master Chief as like a blank slate for like the player to project yeah. themselves onto. Given you voice the yeah. character, what personality traits do you envision Chief as having when you voice him? And how would you describe Master Chief's character as somebody who has never heard of the Halo series? Oh, uh, wow. Uh, well, I, could, I, I can answer both those questions with the same answer, but, um, you know, I think... He is a um, he is a man of few words he's he's a man uh you know who who uh, uh you know had a very disruptive childhood obviously taken from basically kidnapped from his parents at an early age and, and then uh you know trained to be the super soldier and augmented with all these uh abilities that allowed him to be superhuman uh 
uh, but I think I also, uh, I've always felt that he was a very lonely uh, character um, who, who, you know, was super devoted to his his job, his duties as a, as a soldier. Uh, but I, I think he also was a very isolated uh, kind of character whose only, who's only real connection on any kind of emotional level was with Cortana. You know, so the so the interesting uh, thing about that relationship is that his all his his most significant human connection was with an artificial intelligence, which is sort of a you know uh, on, on it's sort of counterintuitive. It's, it's you know that that was his deepest connection, which was something that doesn't really have a heart, you know, as it were. Uh, so that's how I would describe him, both to myself in terms of how I approach the character, and for somebody who never played the game, you know who he is. And I do think uh, that it makes him a more interesting character. And you describe him, as many people do, as a blank slate, which I think is is very true. Um, I think it was a, a, a genius of it as from the part of Bungie. To never give Master Chief a face. You know, people say, well, you know, are they ever going to take his helmet off? Are we ever going to see what he looks like? And, you know, that may happen, but I, but I think uh, it's a bit better that it hasn't, certainly at the beginning, because it allows the player to project themselves onto Master Chief. And, you know, I often say if you look into Master Chief's shield, what do you see? Well, you see a reflection of yourself. And I think that was, that's by intent, so that you can really put yourself inside his armor and um, play the game as if you want, as if you you are Master Chief. When, like, Comedy Ball did as well as it did and became so successful, what was your initial reaction? And did you expect the game to succeed as well as it did? I had, I had no idea. You know, I mean, I when I did Halo, when I did the, the, the recordings mm -hmm. for uh, Combat Evolved, I think we did it, it was a two-day job. And um, like most voiceover, you know, you do the job and, and uh, you walk away and that's it. You forget about it. Um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, I'll do a, a, a commercial. And, uh, you know, if you ask me two hours later, what was it, what, what did you read for or, or what was the body of the copy? I can't remember. <laughs> it, just goes, it just goes away. Uh, you know, I often say the only thing you really remember is when you're getting a residual check for, for the work that you did. Then you remember it because you're getting a reminder, you know, of a financial uh, sense every uh, so often in your mailbox. But with Halo uh, and video games, there is no residual payment. So once you do it, you do the job, you, you leave, you get paid, and you move on. And I, and I completely forgot about it for over a year. And I happened to, about a year or so later, I happened to be at a friend's house down uh, here in Florida, actually. And I, I was with a, a, a girl I was dating at the time, and we were staying at her brother's house, and he had two kids. And I remember walking through the living room, and they were playing Halo. And it sort of struck a, a chord in me. And I said, wait a second. And, you know, that's a high voice that character in that game that you're playing. And the kids are like, what? Well, who, who was it? And I couldn't remember his name. I couldn't remember Master Chief. And I said, 
Well, I think he was, uh, I can't remember his name, but I think he was the main guy in the game. And they said, Master Chief. And I said, yeah, yeah, I think it was Master Chief. Well, within the half an hour, you know, there's a dozen kids outside this guy's store carrying their Xboxes or a copy of the game wanting to get an autograph. And that was, um, that was a light bulb moment for me because I had no idea how, because I didn't play video games, so I wasn't involved in, in the world at all. And I had no idea how popular Halo had become and, and the character of Master Chief. So it, it was a, uh, it, it, it was definitely a moment for me that, uh, that set me on another course that uh, has continued to this day. Oh, wow. So, given you've been voicing the character for almost 20 years, what were some of your favorite, like, Master Chief scenes in some of the more recent games to voice? And what were some moments that stand out to you above the rest in, like, the recording process? You know, uh, it, 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 of course, I, I guess doing it initially was a moment. But again, I didn't really appreciate I thought I did decent work. Although, every time I listen to the first two games, I, all, all I hear is the fact that I had a cold when I was recording both of those, and I could hear this nasal quality in my voice that drives me crazy, but, you know, that, that is what it is. Uh, I think one of the, the, the first real big moments for me that, 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 I, that I recall, uh, well, first of all, the, you know, the first unique thing was when you record all the, uh, what I would call the kill sessions or the death sessions where, you have to go in and make all the noises for when you as a player screw up and Master Chief dies. You know, well, there's, yeah. there's, there's certain, there's certain vocalizations that need to go along with that, and I'd never done anything like that. And it was uh, it was an interesting few hours, uh, you know, the first time around to, uh, you know, to do that. And also then hopefully not shred your voice to the point that I couldn't go in and do my radio show. Um, then the second one was uh, in Halo 3, I think it's Halo 3, where I end up uh, finally uh, killing off uh, the 343 character, Guilty Spark. And I and, and the guy who voices him, Tim Dabo and I are friends. We, we've known each other for a long time, pre preceding Halo. And, uh, but I did get a certain satisfaction in offing him in, <laughs> in Halo 3. Uh, but then the real beat, then when we finally went back to do Halo 4, uh, there was a couple of things. Number one, that was the first game that Bungie was not involved with from 343 slash Microsoft had taken it over. And they were really considering um, replacing me with another, you know, with probably some sort of celebrity uh, to do the voice of Master Chief. And um, it wasn't working out. Whoever did it, they, they had got somebody to do it and it wasn't it wasn't working out and they were beta testing the game and people didn't like the fact that, that Master Chief sounded different, et cetera, et cetera. So they came back to me to to uh, you know, record some, you know, basically demo. So I, I told them I never auditioned for, for Master Chief, but there's one exception. I actually did audition for him for Halo Four because they were already thinking they were gonna go another way. Because in Halo 4, for those who played the game, uh, there's a lot more emotional involvement between him and Cortana in that game. And they weren't sure that that, uh, that that would translate for me. And so we did some of the first sessions, although they never told me. I knew that it was uh, an audition to see if I could emote 
master chief the way they wanted to. Fortunately, it all worked out. And when we did those sessions, it was a real thrill. It was the first time that Jen Taylor, who is the voice of Cortana, it's the first time the two of us actually worked together in the same room. We had never even met uh, before Halo 4. And it was not only did we meet, but we got to work together in the same room. And that was a particular thrill for me. And uh, I, I really enjoyed some of the work we did on that. Um, and uh, and then beyond that, you know, I can tell I can't really tell you much about Halo Infinite, other than to say that I've really enjoyed some of the work. <laughs> so I think I think people are going to enjoy it when we finally get around to getting that game out. I think it's going to be. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to to what we've been able to do with uh, with the character. And like the fan reaction to it. Absolutely. Yeah, of course, that's critical. And uh, uh, you know, the the uh, initial reaction to Halo Four was mixed. Um, I, I think. Uh, you know, people liked the storyline, but they didn't like the gameplay. And then when we got to Halo Guardian, they uh, they didn't like the story, but they liked the gameplay. Uh, so hopefully we're going to hit them on all cylinders here on the next one. But it's, you know, fan reaction is, and, and I will say this too, the cool thing about working with 343 uh, and, the, and the people that I've worked with and the people that I watch, even not the ones that I don't work with, but I'm very intricately involved in the game. Um, is how much uh, fan uh, involvement there is in, in deciding the course of of the game. And so they really they really do care uh, about you know what fans think of how this is going. And um, fans can be uh, very much involved in in how the game ends up coming out, uh, even in the early stages. And I and I've seen it happen. And I see it happen with Halo Infinite. I mean, their family action is uh, crucial. And it's, um, you know, to that, to that end, I respect the people who are putting their heart and soul into this, but they do care about the, the end product and the end recipient, uh, as it were. They really care about their fan reaction and listening to fans. Absolutely. And, and, and decisions often are, are made based on uh, fan reaction, and uh, you know, I think that's that's the way it should be. Was recording like Halo Four um, more difficult or like more interesting uh, for you because you really got into that emotional like core of the character? Absolutely, it was much more interesting. You know, first of all, I had more to say. Which it, so you know, anytime an actor gets more lines, you know, they're into it. But uh, yeah, and we got it was sort of. Um, where I always hoped the storyline would go uh, is with uh, you know you know on a deeper level and the relationship between the chief and Cortana. I thought there was uh, you, you know after Halo Three there was so much so much that had been left unsaid and undone. And so when the storyline came out for Halo Four, it was also the first time. I really got to be involved with the writers. Um, you know, not that I was doing any writing, but but they got me involved. You know, rather than just here's the script, read it. This is kind of the way it was. You know, in the first three games, uh, this was on a level. So they wanted to make sure that that I was involved. Uh, you know, to understand where they were trying to take the story, and then to bring that understanding to the reading of of uh, Master Chief's lines. 
And that's carried on, that carried on into Halo Guardians, and it's carried on in, in a big way into uh, Halo Incident. So um, it, it, it does make it much more interesting. And then at the same, you know, to answer the second part of your question, it was more challenging. Uh, Halo 4 was, you know, absolutely the most challenging uh, that I had done up to that point for those reasons that you had to tap into some emotions uh, from him, from Master Chief, on a, on a level that you hadn't had to do before. And to be able to, you, you know, get that out there and, and have it feel real and honest was a definite challenge. Because it was a completely different ball game from the last few games, where he only said like maybe um, like ten to fifteen lines. Yeah, it was something like that, and and it wasn't even just the quantity; it was the quality. It was the you know you were tapping into um, you were tapping in, in, into emotions that that were difficult for the character. So you know when he's expressing. Fear or sadness or loss, um, all of those emotions are are not easy for him to to express. So, as an actor, you you're you're, you're trying to tap into you know that difficulty. Not just it's not just okay. Well, here's what Master Chief's feeling: loss. Okay, yeah, he's feeling lost, and he doesn't know how to express that. And you're supposed to express his inability to express. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So that, that, that's the challenge, and you hopefully will hit, you know, that sweet spot um, and to be able to, to convey that and in a believable and honest way to the people who are watching the, uh, you know, the scenes in the game. It's an, like it sounds like an extra hurdle because you have this character who's this reserved Clint Eastwood type, and you got to play him where, where he's feeling these emotions, but he can't quite like express them. It's not just like you're yeah. just like having him go off into some kind of rage or like, um, like like right. break down. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, Master Chief's not going to cry, you know, but maybe he might feel like it, <laughs> you know, and so that's. That's the subtlety of, you know, that's where the subtlety of the performance, you know, has to come in and hopefully make the the viewer feel that emotion as well. Or, you know, to be able to say, oh, you know, to be able to have them feel that is where you have to be as, as, a, as a voice actor. What was the most difficult moment of your career and how did you get through it? The most difficult. Well, being fired, <laughs> that, that could be a challenge. Uh, uh, and I've had a couple of those in my life. Uh, you, you know, and that's sort of where you have to, uh, you know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and, and, and keep moving. I mean, I uh, my first real case of that was when I was in Los Angeles and I was working at a very successful radio station for over 10 years and we had had a good long run but you know things were changing and and uh it was time for me to go and when that happened um you know you're you're left with that thing of of you you have to keep your feel like you still have something to offer and i think that's the challenge you know you have the initial 
sort of financial concerns. At the time, I was married, had a couple of kids, and, and uh, you know, you still got to put food on the table. Um, so, you know, there's those real, you know, uh, very immediate concerns. But then there's also that, you know, am I, uh, you know, do I still have something to offer here as a career? Do I, you know, still have a, a, the, the excitement for the work? And, you know, what came easy before was now not so easy. Um, you know, what felt natural was now something I had to work on a little bit. And uh, it all worked out. It all worked out great. But, but it was, uh, you know, there were some moments in there, you know, when, when uh, you know, I was out of work, you know, a couple, three months and, and um, not sure where the future was going to go. And, was, you know, had my luck run out as I used to, I'm sure I felt that at the time. It was like, well, you know what? You know, let's run out, boy. It, now you're going to have to get a real job. And uh, that thought terrified me. But uh, uh, like I said, it all, I think that you, you have to have a belief in yourself. And, you know, sometimes you have to manufacture that belief. And uh, there's an old expression about, uh, you know, sometimes you have to act as if, even though you may not, it may, may not really feel it or may not even really believe it. Uh, you have to make yourself believe it to get through it, and eventually you'll get to the other side. And, and um, I remember once I was doing a um, a job uh, uh, when 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 video rentals were first happening. Okay, movie rentals. Uh, I worked for this company. It was Columbia Pictures actually, and they would put in their videos. They would produce a little. Uh, a trailer scene that would come on in the beginning of the video talking about their next month's coming attraction. And initially I was doing a voiceover for them and eventually we went to on camera. And one of them had me dressed up as a, as a cowboy and we were introducing the movie Silverado, which you may or may not remember. It was really good Western. And um, so they had me dressed up on the Warner Brothers back lot as a cowboy and I was going to you know, introduce this, this new movie. And uh, part of the scene involved me riding a horse. And the director asked me if I had ever ridden a horse before. And I said, oh, yeah, absolutely, many times. Uh, no, no, yeah, no problem. Well, I'd never ridden a horse before, <laughs> ever, in my life. <laughs> and um, and I mean, so the director left, and I'm standing there, you know, with the horse and the horse trainer and me. And I turned to the horse trainer, and I said, dude, uh, you got to help me here. I've never been on one of these animals in my life. <laughs> you know, just, you know, all I ask is teach me how to not fall off and not look stupid. And, uh, you know, fortunately, the horse knew a whole lot more about the whole thing than I did. And, and uh, you know, we, we trotted around the corner. and I, I pulled up to the saloon and hopped off the horse. And I didn't fall off and the horse didn't kick me. So it all worked out. But it was the point of the story is sometimes you just have to act as if. Sometimes you have to fake it till you make it. And, um and uh, that, that, so in the difficult moments of my career and, and, some, and in my life in general, sometimes you just got to fake it till you make it and, and trust that uh, you will get there on the other side. Just try to see past like the, the bad things that just happened to you and just kind of try yeah. to go on, keep walking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, just keep on walking. That's uh, an excellent way to put it. And, uh, uh, I think it's great, you know, it was advice that was given to me, and I and I pass it along to, to anybody who, who cares to listen, is that, uh, and especially, 
you know, on a much broader level right now in the times that we live in, uh, that, that seem incredibly difficult, and they are incredibly difficult. There's no, there's no soft soaping it, you know. But uh, you have to believe that we will get to the other side if you just, you know, do the things you're supposed to do and hang in there and and stay strong, and and uh, you know, good things will happen. You know, on the other side, and, and I firmly believe that. And and all I can tell you is, in my own personal life, that's almost always the way it's worked out. So you have many accomplishments to your name, from showcasing the return of Jimmy Page and Robert Plant to interviewing the members of the Eagles after they like just reunited, to hosting many successful right. radio shows, to being in one of the most popular video games ever. What is your proud? What is the proudest moment of your professional career, and why is that moment so important to you personally? A uh, really great question, I'm, and I don't know that I can give you a singular answer. You know, I wow. I mean, so yeah, there's there's a number of things that come. You know, I feel like I mean, I'm very proud of of the work I've done with Halo, and and I think. Um, but, you know, like a lot of that kind of stuff, man, you know, sometimes it's just luck. Sometimes it's just being in the right place at the right time. And uh, I, I do believe, you know, I, I consider myself, you know, the one thing that Master Chief and I have in common is that uh, we're both very lucky. And uh, if you follow the storyline of Halo, uh, uh, Dr. Halsey, who's the one who really picked uh, John and, and developed him as the character that he, that he or the Spartan that he became, uh, often says that that if the the overriding quality she saw in him as a child was that he was seemed to be very lucky, and so Chief and I have that in common because I consider that as, for myself as well. The, the 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 part of that that I suppose I'm proud of is is that um, you need to put yourself in a position to be lucky. Uh, and and I feel like I've, I've I've taken advantage of those moments in my career uh, to you know to, to to make sure I'm in the right place at the right time. And then if luck is involved, so be it. If it's not, it's not. But but at least I gave it a I, I gave it my my best shot. Um, so you know, having said that, and obviously because Halo is the most successful thing I've ever done. Uh, I'm obviously very proud of it, but I think I'm proud of of, of 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 you know staying with the career and 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 uh, and persevering over the years and and uh, uh, you know doing good work. I mean, there's you know I feel like I've i there, there's some things that I've done. I'm proud of a lot of things we did on Rockline, and uh, you know that was certainly a lot of fun to do. But I think we had a lot of great moments, and you mentioned some of them with. You know, uh, Page and Plant was, you know, uh, went very well. They, you know, had the Eagles together. You know, that alone was not simple at the time. Mm. And then to have it come off well, uh, you, you know, was, was uh, you know, was a moment I was very proud of. But, but, uh, but so much of it, you know, everything that I've ever done is always a collaborative effort. There's always other people who got help to get you you know, where you, where you ended up getting, it's net, you're never alone. Uh, the only time you're really alone is when you fail. You know, what's the expression about that success has many fathers, but failure is a woman. That's very true. Uh, but, but, uh, anything that I've ever done that was ever worthwhile, there were other people involved who, 
know, it was, uh, you know, various, uh, you know, the guy who hired me, uh, you know, went my first really big radio job in Pittsburgh, uh, Kid Barron, you know, who gave me that shot. You know, the guy who brought me out to Los Angeles, Tom Yates. I mean, so there are people who are always, you know, give you that, that chance. And then it's up to you to, uh, you know, either take it or, or, or lose it. But, but, uh, uh, you know, it is, uh, it, you know, it's always important to remember you, you never did it alone. That's for sure. It's a real collaborative effort. It's all about who you know and when you take those opportunities that are given to you. Well, it's always important to uh, always be good to the people on the way up because you're probably going to meet them on the way down. I tried to burn as few bridges as possible. Of course, because if you're like um, in a worse place, they'll be always there to try to help you back up. Yeah, yeah people do remember that kind of thing. I think that's a great note to end on. It's been an honor and a privilege to have you on the show. Do you have any closing words for our listening audience? Well, uh, just for those Halo fans out there, thank you very much for for uh, your tremendous support of the franchise over the years, and uh, I look forward to uh, our next adventure. I think uh, uh, obviously COVID has slowed down our release for for Halo Infinite, which should have been out right about now, actually, and uh, and uh, now we're pushed into next year. I don't know exactly when that's going to be, but hopefully sooner rather than later. But uh, I'm 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 confident that. Uh, the patience the fans are showing will be rewarded with a with a great product and a, and a great story and a great game. Um, and then to the people of Dayton who who put up with me in my very very early years, uh, you know, uh, going to school at, uh, at 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 UD and of course and and obviously we you know knew, knew a lot of people at Wright State as well and and uh, what an experience that was. Uh, in, in those years, and um, and uh, uh, you know, for 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 those who may have been around in those times, uh, you know, we all kind of went through it together, and um, and I guess now, just to say again, that you know, I think we we are living in an extraordinary moment, and um, this too shall pass, and it's important to look out for each other, uh, no matter what you're doing. Uh, you know, one of the uh, character traits of, of a master chief is, is that he looks out for for those around him and counts on those around them to help him, but also is, is always very uh, cognizant of, uh, of his role in their lives. And I think, you know, in a very broad way, we can take that sort of attitude to our life today and know that uh, if we uh, stick with each other and help each other out, uh, again, we will get through this. And uh, I think we'll be better off for it on the other side. That's our show, folks. It's been amazing talking to you, Mr. Downs. And it's been an honor and a privilege having you on the show. Halo really meant a lot to me growing up, and it got me through some dark places. And hearing that you came from a similar place to where I'm at right now, being Dayton Radio alumni, and also trying to become a radio DJ, is really inspiring to me. Well, my pleasure, Random, and I wish you all the, all the luck in the world, and... Uh... You certainly conducted a great interview, and I've enjoyed it very much, and, and we've, we've got, got to some good places. So uh, thank you for that, and uh, best of luck to you in the future. Thank you, too. That means a lot coming from you. All right, my friend. Take care. Stay healthy. You, too. Bye.